So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then we're going to, uh, this is going to relate, I promise, into all these things. As we go in uh, here in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is trying to recalibrate the church in Corinth that had some really big struggles. And as we go through this text, I, I want to remind you, and I've asked Mason to do Be Thou My Vision as the reprise, and Mason, normally you do part of it. I'm thinking this morning to do the whole thing again, okay? Because there's some things in that song that as we were singing it all the way through again in worship, like it was just like, man, that's reflecting the message, it's reflecting the message, reflecting the message. And, and I think it'll be a chance for us to, to like re- recalibrate our own hearts as we hear the word of God and worship him for how he's wired us and how he's established the institution of the local church for us to be healthy. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses, we're going to begin in verses 16 and 17 to really unpack that. I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through 23. We looked at a little bit, uh, verses 16 and 17, last week as we talked about God's temple, but I want to go back and look at that a, a minute more. So verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. The title of this message this morning is True Wisdom. See, here Paul is unpacking uh, or, or teaching the church that they're operating in this futility of their um, minds because they think that they have this worldly wisdom that is actually in antithesis to the wisdom of God. And they're relying on the, their, the Greek uh, rhetoric and all those things that we've talked about in pre- previous weeks, and they're still elevating the individual. He's not dropped that aspect of the topic. And he's saying, if you want true wisdom, how you operate is in this way, as God's temple in such a way that you're existing in relationship with Christ. So you kind of take these two, like um, the bookends, if you will, verses 16 and 17, and then verse 23. Look at what he says again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So here is the, the first piece that we need to recognize. If we are not operating well in honoring God's church, we are operating in futility. It's foolishness. And then what does God say that will happen? He says he will destroy the one who is destroying God's temple. We're going to look at that a little bit more. I want to read a statement to you because I I love the the value of this. And in this, I, I I want to make sure that we're not just church-focused, but we're Christ-focused because the, the church is uh, metaphorically described in relationship to Christ in a lot of ways. So here's what Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, says. He says, Christ founded the church in Matthew 16, 18, which is, do you all remember what that is? It's where uh, he's looking at Peter and the disciples, and he's basically saying, hey, Peter, who do, you, uh, who do people say that I am? And he says to Peter, who do you, you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the, the Messiah. And, and then Peter, uh, Jesus says what? Upon this rock, 
I will build my church. We sang about the rock this morning. The rock is not just the fact of Jesus. The rock is, rock is our testimony and the power of the church. And so Jesus goes on and talks about that on this confession of faith in verse 19, he talks about the keys of the kingdom, the authority of God is being given to the membership of the church because we confess and profess Christ together. It's an incredibly important passage that I think we miss, but that context about the keys of the kingdom and the authority of members ministering to one another is what establishes the, the context for Matthew 18, 18, where Jesus says, here's how you uh, exercise church discipline as members in a local church together. So I know that's a little bit sideways, but here, again, Christ founded the church. Christ purchased it with his blood and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. I think I would add to Dever's statement, not to argue, and he would likely agree with me 100%, is that happens within the family and that happens within the local church. And if we don't work together and strive together as a local church to honor the Lord and operate in godly wisdom, then we are going to end up anemic and our testimony will, will uh, be diminished and the glory of God will not be um, expressed as best as it could be. So let me remind you this. Last week I mentioned this in the text right here in, in uh, verse 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? That you is plural. I think that there's this tendency for us to often interpret Scripture uh, very individualistically because of our culture, and, and I'm going to mention a little bit more about that in just a moment. But, but here Paul is saying and emphasizing that the power of the gospel is how uh, comes about because we are collected corporately as a church. We have to recognize that we don't just worship independently, but we come together as believers to worship the Lord, to minister and serve together. So let me um, make sure that, uh, let me share this with you. James Bannerman. Is anybody familiar with James Bannerman? Ah, I finally stumped some people. Okay, um, James Bannerman is a Scotch Presbyterian. He's written a huge book on the church. It's phenomenal. I don't agree with everything because he's Presbyterian. I'm Baptist, but it's, most of everything is really good. If you really, like, get geeked out on some of the ecclesiology stuff, it is a great, great read. Go get it or, or come borrow my book. Um, I, I would let you borrow it because you, you need to just read it if you're really nerding out on that stuff. But here's what he says. This is from Bannerman. Um, he published this in 1869, by the way. So he, he was right there in the era of Spurgeon, who I'm studying. So he said, first, the church is not originated in man, but is a divine institution established by Christ. So, so let me pause there, and, and I want you that just to like weigh on you for a minute. I think so many times we think that the church is just something we go to on Sunday morning or, or something that we do on you know, part of our routines of life. Folks, the church, the living body, what Christ is the head of, we looked at it last week, the field, the building, the temple, it is a divine institution. Christ is our head. We, we are his body. There is such an intimate unity with, with the church. And that's certainly the church universal, but I think it's also the church local. 
Because Jesus established and points to, and Paul points to, the emphasis of the church local. We don't know the church universal unless we meet as the church local. So, so we have to recognize that. It has to be about us gathering together and acknowledging the divine institution established by Christ is what we are part of and what we are engaging in when we gather. Second thing he says, he notes that the joy of salvation, we sing about this this morning, the joy of salvation, okay? The joy of salvation enjoyed by a believer cannot be enjoyed alone. It is enjoyed by other believers in communion as a church. You say, I can enjoy things on my own. Yeah, you can, you can. But isn't it always enhanced into a greater joy when you share it with someone else? Am, am I right? I mean, you, you share the blessing and it's like, oh, all of a sudden by sharing those things and sharpening and challenging, it's like the joy begins to exponentially increase because you start to find out that you're not alone in this but you're experiencing the same thing that God wants other believers to experience. That's why the local church is essential. Third thing that Bannerman says is this. The common joys and sorrows of believers are experienced only amongst themselves. They cannot be understood by anyone else who is not a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a second. As a church, whatever we experience as Christians together only people that truly understand that are fellow believers. And here's what Bannerman goes on to say. They are the things, and they, they are the in, inevitable necessities that cement our relationships with one another in Christ. That, that like, st stuck with me. Because I think so many times, we as American Christians especially, we think that, that uh, and it's, I'm going to say this, the prosperity gospel is especially pushed this kind of doctrine, that we ought not suffer, but because we're Christians, we ought to find every blessing to be ours. That if we name it and claim it, it can be ours, and we, we shouldn't have any kind of struggle because we're going to be sanctified. And, and they miss the process. They miss that the, the ideas that when we struggle and we suffer, that God is producing character in us, and all those things produce hope, ultimately. They change us. And so when we as Christians actually experience these, what he calls these inevitable necessities, they do cement us together in what we are the only uh, ones who can experience. So, so we, we need to embrace those struggles in the sense of saying, God's at work. He's shaping us. Let, let's proceed forward together, arm in arm, prayer in prayer. Like, does that make sense so that we're, we're constantly like, connected in such a devoted way to one another because we're part of the church? And it, and it transforms us and, and brings about the glory of Christ. So here's, here's what I was going to say a, a little bit earlier. I meant to bring the book. I did bring the book down here. Sorry. If you have not read this book, I've recommended it. You need to read it. it it's, it's a hard read in one sense, but it's a, it's a read that is so culturally relevant for us. And I know you're like, we can't see it, Matt. Um, I'm going to tell you the title, okay, because it's, it's small. But this le lets you see a little bit of the cover, okay? This is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And here's what the, the like, subtitle is, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individual, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. What he does is he traces the history of how we've arrived at, uh, basically it's an independence that 
triumph of the self and how that is uh, being expressed in the sexual revolution today. So when you think about sexual identity, what, what is that disregarding? Um, where we say, oh, like, like Katie and I go to TPAC some. And so at the, in the playbills, the actors or actresses will oftentimes put their uh, pronouns that they prefer. And it just drives us crazy. Why? Because they're trying to override what their pronouns are as they were created and born with, according to, to God's creative plan and according to who they are according to biological standards. Rise and triumph of the modern self. I know more about my identity than God knows. I have more wisdom than the creator. And so Truman addresses all sorts of those things, how we've arrived at this point. Now, now here's all of my point in this related to the church. I don't think that we're just doing that in a sexually revolutionized way. I think we also do that in cultural perspectives and ways that we, our, our attitudes, if you will, about the church and other authority things in our lives. And so we say, I don't need the church. I can just do my Christianity as an individual, and I can be distant or separate from the church. It's the same attitude. It's the same value. It's just practiced in a different way in a different context. And, folks, that is antithetical to Scripture. We, we have to be people who, like Bannerman says, ex express the hope of Christ as we come together as the local church, as Paul, it, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, to include the plural use of the word you. We cannot do church as individuals. The church is about all of us being called to be in a local body together. Um, so let me look a little further. Um, why, why would this be called, like, why did I title this, this sermon True Wisdom? Well, here's why. Let's look back at verses 18 through 23. He says, let no one deceive himself. <laughs> Put that in context real quickly of what I've just shared about the individual. See, all of a sudden, it's, it, it, Paul's shifting from the plural perspective of the church to let no one deceive himself. When we become too individualized, we shun authority. We shun the corporate truths that we as a church ought to hold to about under the authority of the Scripture. We, I would add to the later than this text, but the creeds, the things that help us identify the, the core doctrines of our uh, faith, those kind of things. When we individualize those things, we endanger ourselves to being conceited and falling uh, out of wisdom into um, falsehood, okay? And so he says, if anyone, just, uh, verse 18 again, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It's like we have to humble ourselves in relationship to authority and what's right in the church life and one another going back to what Ma uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 16, 19, that the body has the confession, has the keys to the kingdom, the authority to there. Matthew 18, that we are to minister to one another. Uh, when we have sin, we're to approach one another uh, in biblical way. All of those things are about authority in one another's life. You can't do that if you're living independently of everyone else. So we have to be humble in those kind of relationships. He goes on, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Folks, we need to be careful to identify what the world is saying, how it's trying to reshape and constantly push against the truth and the hope uh, that is shared with us in the, the specific revelation of God's word. And we need to cling tightly to this and resist those things that the world is trying to reshape so that we don't fall into folly. It keeps going. For it is written, 
He catches the wise in their craftiness. Do not think you're wise according to the standards of the world. Folks, we need to be wise according to Scripture and its principles. We need to be sharing the word of truth. And he says in verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Man, and I, I just immediately go back to Job uh, when, when he's talking in, in that regard to the Lord. And he's like, Lord, I, I don't have sin in my life that I know of, but even whatever I say to you, you, you bring me down. That, that's a paraphrase, obviously. But he's, he's getting to, like Job recognizes that all of his wisdom is, is futile and folly when he were to challenge God. We need to have that kind of humility as we approach the Lord. Because when we do, then he brings that wisdom, to godly wisdom to us because we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 1, 2, and then we worship him differently because we are transformed. We're not operating in the, the, the modes of selfishness and worldly wisdom. So, with all that, let me go back to this. Um, well, let's, let's read verse 21 again as well. So he says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. So here's, the, this is the irony, is we want to tend to elevate mankind and his thoughts, but God's saying in Christ, if you'll boast in Christ and who you are as the church, all things are yours because Christ is in God and God is in Christ. That's how he concludes. And so we need to recognize that the, the security of our position is not in the, the wisdom of men, but it's in the, the humility as we walk along with one another in the church. So here's one of the things that I, I want to really break down for just a minute more. And, and that is uh, verse 17. Let's go back to this because I want to actually have a little bit of dialogue this morning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. L let me ask a couple questions. So, so I'm, I was thinking about this. I think when we think often about the, the destruction of something, especially when we think about the, the destruction of the church, we, we can easily look at only the outside pressures that impact the church. So we'd say, oh, yeah, it's culture. It's, it's people that are critical of Christians. It's the, the modes that, that are being adopted, laws that are being adopted that are antithetical to God's word. Like, like I think about the Obergefell decision where uh, gay marriage was uh, allowed in the U.S. in 2015. So that's certainly going against Christian uh, virtue and biblical definition of marriage. So all of those things are like outside and we, we would say, yeah, they're, they're trying to press in and destroy us the church. But I also want to ask this. Do you think there's inside things that destroy the church? I mean, th that's where I grieve the most. Like, outside stuff, I can expect that. It's the world. Like, lost people are going to act lost, right? We, we ought to expect that. But, but what about us? What are the things that are inside the church that, that, for us, we need to recalibrate about ourselves? That if we don't, we're destroying the church. So, so let me give you a biblical example of this, and I'm going to stretch it a little bit. I'm going to say that on the, the front end, and I think it would be okay for me to do. I don't think I'm necessarily stretching too far to be heretical or anything like that. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, there's this point in the account of uh, Paul's conversion. And if you want to turn there, that'd be great, just so we get it together. Um, Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. So if you remember, Saul, uh, he, he was a Pharisee, 
trained up. He, he's likely the one that was holding uh, uh, Philip's robe. Am I getting that right? Um, Stephen's robe when Stephen was stoned. And uh, so, so he was uh, certainly persecuting the church very early on. And here he is on his way to Damascus to do what? Persecute the church further. Okay, so, so let's look at a theological principle right here in verses 4 and 5. And falling to the ground, he, this is Saul, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now hang on that for a second. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What, what I learned in college, when a, a professor stopped on that, he said, do you realize when we persecute or when the church is being criticized or persecuted, the truth is that is Jesus himself. Boy, that was revolutionary to me. Because it's not just that Jesus started a divine institution called the local church, but we are like really part of Jesus. That blows my mind. You know, but but he, we can make the connections really easily, like quickly, right? The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have the mind of Christ. All of these things that play together in that. And so I'm going to be like really, really transparent for a moment in this sense, in the, the question. If the church could be hindered by the inside, how are we hindering our work with Jesus? Like, does that, does that make sense what I'm getting at? Because I think so many times we think, oh, it's no big deal. It's just the institution. When the truth is, folks, if we're neglecting, like, our church life, we're actually neglecting Christ. If we're criticizing the body of Christ, we're actually criticizing Christ. So, here's some things that I thought about. If there's a lack of purity, we're, we're denying Christ's call. If there's controversies, we're, we're wounding Christ in the controversies. If there's gossip, we're speaking against Christ himself. If, if we're... Uh, and, and the, the, Paul talks about these next things, or some of these things even in Corinthians. So, so hang on here. He talks about if we're not, and he confronts the church with abuse of the system established to care for the widows. So if we're not caring for people that are indigent and in need, we're hurting whom? Christ. He, he talks about the social issues, about their freedom to eat food, and that they were criticizing others who were, clear to finding freedom to eat food that was presented to idols. They're like, it doesn't matter. They're just false idols. But that crit criticism, and, and it started leading to legalism, was actually doing what? It was being critical of Christ. He, he goes on to talk about uh, the problems that they were having in worship in the church. So they weren't worshiping Christ well. They were not serving in ministry. That's why he corrects all these things about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. All of those things are listed. In Hebrews, go on. They were neglecting their salvation and drifting from the truth. When we do that, we're neglecting Christ. When in Hebrews, they, it says they didn't possess sound doctrine and they were ministering based upon other things. Uh, it says that they were neglecting to meet together. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, if we neglect to meet together, what are we doing? 
when we're neglecting Christ. They were rejecting in, in chapter 13. You get the sense they were rejecting the, the guidance of the leadership. And they were making the leaders like respond with groaning and complaining about the body because they didn't respect the leadership. And there was heartache. And it was not joyful for the leaders. And in that economy of God's uh, government in the church and the, and the organization of it, there was a neglect of Christ and his instruction. There's, if we don't operate as members together well and fulfill Matthew 18, 18, and we're allowing sin to c- creep into the camp, so to speak, what are we doing? We're neg- neglecting Christ. What are some other ways? I want to hear. I, I, I would love for you all to like push back. and uh, Don't point fingers at anybody, okay? <laughs> Unless it's me. What are some ways that we can neglect Christ? Maybe you've struggled with it. You don't have to say it. Just like uh, I struggle with this one. Just say this is an area that can be. Help me think. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, so the Holy Spirit has empowered us with gifts to serve the church. Not, not even, like this is one of the things we talked about yesterday at camp. It's not that parachurch ministry gets to really experience the gift. Okay, they, they do, but really those gifts are for the church. Because as we love one another well, what does the church, or what does the world know? That we are disciples, right? It's through the church's love for one another that the world knows we are disciples and followers of Christ. It's, it's not through parachurch ministry. It's the church. So that service and love are absolutely essential. Other ways? Don, you, were you raising your hand? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. If, if we don't, like if we neglect our prayer life and we're not tilling the soil of prayer, we're truly neglecting Christ. And, and really we're neglecting how we serve and minister in the body as we pray for one another. Good. What else? Okay, so, so we have that. I, I used to call this in youth ministry, like you put the T-shirt on for Sunday morning and then you take it off, and that's all you do. But it's that, and, and I've mentioned this re- week, uh, recently, that we're just the Sunday weekly church. We can't be that. We've got to recalibrate. And that doesn't mean we have to gather every day, okay, because I, I don't think that's where we are contextually in our world, and I don't think contextually we can do that as a church. But how do we live ministry out every day of the week so that we're not weekend warriors, I think that's kind of what you're getting at too, right, Juliana? Is that fair? So that we're not weekend warriors. So we're not just coming in on Sunday, weekend warriors. I, I don't enunciate well, do I? So weekend, not weekend, and yeah, weekend warriors, okay? It does, it does fit. Thanks, Rob. If we're only weekend warriors, we're weekend warriors. I didn't have to, like, enunciate either of those, right? Yeah. If we're only weekend warriors, we're weakened in our walk with Christ. Yeah, so, so there has to be a priority to our lives. So Shay, write it down, mock it up. Yeah, but if we are not intentional in our ministry, well, then we don't serve with our gifts well. We're not praying well. We're not spending time in the Word together. 
And then, and then truthfully, what happens is we get, we get anemic in our church life, in our fellowship with Christ, and, and truthfully, our pride starts to rise, and we operate in worldly wisdom only, because all those things are what provide us godly wisdom and keep us humble before Him, right? Anything else, anybody, like, pressing that anyone else wants to share? I think those are all really good. There's probably tons more. Maybe you're thinking of some. You know, I, I don't have the corner on the market on those ideas. Um, but I do think that we have a chance, and I say chance, a providential opportunity to take these truths and, and to, to recalibrate our own hearts so that we are a church recalibrated together to honor and bless the Lord well. So let me read one last quote and then ask a couple of questions. Um, this is coming in, in context of Matthew 16. John Owen, Puritan, um, now, re remember, for Puritans in the middle to late 1600s, he would have really been, like, just on the, the uh, most recent century back end, if you will, of the Reformation. So moving away from the Catholic Church, that's starting to, to become more solid, but they're still wrestling with the Catholics, okay? So, uh, and, and their form of church government, which is Pope down, okay? Pope can speak ex cathedra, meaning that what he says is, is equal with Scripture, so, so John Owen is responding, reacting to that, and he's talking about this passage in Matthew 16 that talks about the confession of Peter that Jesus, uh, that, that is the rock that the church is going to be founded on, and then this authority that goes with the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. Here's what uh, John Owen says. Um, All authority in the church is committed by Christ unto the officers or rulers of it. And we use this language in our church. We have three offices. Because office is not a biblical term. Remember that. Okay? So if someone is given authority, what do they have? They, they have an office. Right? So the elders have authority. Deacons have authority. And church members have authority. That's a little bit different perspective. But we're not the only people that have identified that. Okay? So I'm not standing on my own when we, we kind of establish that in the church life. So he's getting at this point that all these ministry, these offices, have this authority. So he goes on. All authority in the church is committed by Christ under the officers or rulers of it, as unto all acts and duties whereunto office power is required. And every individual person has the liberty of his own judgment as unto his own consent or dissent in what he is in himself concerned. So he's saying, look, members... You, if something is discontent in, or you see something that's wrong, you have a responsibility to go and correct that. You do it biblically, because here's what he says. That this power, under the name of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, was originally granted unto the whole professing church of believers. In that it is utterly impossible it should reside in any other. Now let me say this. Membership is being elevated in this church. And the responsibility of us to act together as members, we have responsibility to make ministry go forth in our church. It is not just relying upon the elders or the deacons. You as members, are we want to empower you to do ministry. But let me say this. If you do that apart from the guidance and the wisdom that the elders have, then that empowerment can actually endanger the body or endanger you. So we want to operate in these offices well together so the empowerment is such that we go forward really, really well. 
So he's getting on, he goes on to say this, um, that, uh, that it is utterly impossible that should reside in any other who is subject unto death. Or so, so he's saying if they're subject unto death, they're not spiritual. Nobody outside the church has authority, okay? Um, be, they should be renewed upon any occasional intermission, if so fully proved by all Protestant writers against the papists, that it needs not on this occasion be again insisted on. So he's saying, don't go back to the papists. Don't go back to the, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. This is our responsibility as members to live these things out. And, and, and so I, I want to make, hopefully, it really clear that in order for us to be a church that's recalibrated, to be moving in great health, it's the requirement of every one of us as members together in the body to operate together in such a way that we're loving Christ well. So, so let me, as Mason, and maybe hit the rest, of, I don't know, you having everybody come on the, as the troop comes up, the Taylor troop comes up. Chris, are you really responsible for all these folks? He didn't say yes. <laughs> he, just, he just grinned at me. Um, I, I want to I set the stage for what we're going to sing in Be Thou My Vision. If all of these things about Christ, are, are like the church life itself, is really about Christ and walking with Christ, we need Him to be our vision. We need Him to be our best thought. We need Him to be the joy of our salvation. We, we, we need to be pursuing Christ unhesitantly because as the bride, as the body, and I, I want you to think about this for just a quick second. When you think about Christ calling us to heaven, where are we going to be at that point? It's the bridegroom bringing his bride to the feast. If you remember when he talked about communion, he said, I will not drink this cup again until when? Until we go to heaven with him. He is waiting on us. How are we preparing ourselves as a bride to love our Savior so, like, beautifully? How are we living in such a way that our lives don't neglect him? We don't let the outward stuff push in, and we don't let the inward stuff reside. That, that distracts us, that, that hurts Jesus himself. We are called to be holy and pure and righteous and loving, not just to Jesus, but to one another. So I want to ask you, and just as a way of response this morning, to do this, one thing. Bow your head, and that's not for any magical purpose. It's just to really tune every other distraction out. And we just ask the Lord to search you. We ask the Lord to search you and show you if there's anything in your attitude towards the church or towards Christ that maybe you've been neglecting or you need to recalibrate, and will you just do this? Confess, Lord, that is something I need to begin to change with your help, and I'm committing today to do that very thing. That's, that's the, the response this morning. So I'm going to be quiet and just give you about 15 seconds to just engage with the Lord personally and privately. Heavenly Father, if we are believers, you have called us to be part of the body of Christ, his bride. 
there's no greater privilege. Yet, Lord, I think oftentimes we treat it flippantly. We may neglect it. Lord, that is not our hearts this morning. We want to be open to the convicting power of your spirit to draw us back into right fellowship, to right attention uh, that you deserve as our head. And, And Lord, may we express that well by engaging rightly as a church together. So Father, um, this morning, we want you to be glorified because of your perfect plan that you established in the perfect time by sending Jesus to atone for our sin, to bear our guilt and shame so that we might enter into a right relationship with you personally, but also corporately with the church. We celebrate that. And so Lord, now, as we sing a reprise of the the songs this morning and beat out my vision, Lord, may this be a a grand lifting of our voices and our hearts and our thoughts to you because I think it so well reflects these values that we find that have been communicated in our text this morning. So Father, we want to stand together and do this in honor of you, glorifying you collectively as a church. So we do this in Jesus' name, amen.